Good afternoon and welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors Roundtable Discussion with Ambassador Trevor Trena. Um, I'm Kathleen Sheehan. I'm the Executive Director of the Council and I just have two brief housekeeping notes. One is to let everybody know that we will be recording today's talk and it will be posted on our website so members who were not able to join live can watch it later. And second, we strongly encourage questions from the audience. So this can be a, a full discussion. And to submit a question, all you have to do is go to the bottom of your Zoom screen and click on the Q&A button and then type in your questions. And then at the uh, end of the ambassador's talk, uh, our moderator will start to take the questions. And with that, I am very excited to turn the floor over to the moderator for today's event, and that is Council Member Ambassador Bill Eco. Ambassador Eco, the floor is yours. Terrific. Thank you very much. So uh, I am incredibly pleased and honored to be able to introduce our just returned ambassador, uh, ambassador and my friend Trevor Trena, who served our country ably for the, for the last three years in Austria, in Vienna, uh, where I served considerable number of years ago, I guess now, <laughs> not quite so recent. Uh, Trevor has a terrific background. Uh, like me, the president chose to send a businessman to Austria, which I think makes a lot of sense. Uh, Trevor has a background. First off, his education. He went to a little school called Princeton, I think you might have heard of. After that, I spent a little time at Oxford and got his MBA at Berkeley. And his business career has largely been in the startup, you know, IT, San Francisco, Silicon Valley world. Uh, he is from San Francisco, but he's been a successful high-tech entrepreneur, having started five or six companies out there. He is married with two kids, and they all accompanied him to Austria. Uh, he and his wife, Alexis, did a wonderful job representing our country there. He has the unique uh, experience of having been the second member of his family to serve as ambassador to Austria. His grandfather, Wiley Buchanan, uh, served as ambassador to Austria from 75 to 77 under President Gerald Ford. So it gave him a unique opportunity to, I think, ingratiate himself with the Austrian people, uh, showing pictures, for example, of playing in the garden outside the embassy residence as a child. And so with that brief introduction, I will give you Trevor Trena, who's going to make a few remarks, and then we'll go to a Q&A. Well, um, thank you, Bill. And I'm happy to be with all of you in a virtual capacity right now um, and honored to be amongst many colleagues and uh, many other very accomplished people. Uh, I would say honored and in some ways also humbled uh, with the cumulative amount of experience represented by this group, um, but, but uh, delighted to share my story and uh, to talk a little bit about the experiences of the last three years for me and for my family. And um, as Bill mentioned, my, uh, uh, I'll never forget arriving in Austria, landing on the plane after a long trip uh, from California, which is where I was born and raised and um, the plane stopping short of the gate and a bus coming uh, for the ambassador. And in that case, the ambassador was not me, the ambassador was my grandfather. Um, and uh, that was my first of many visits to Austria as about a five or six year old boy uh, staying in what would become later my residence. And, um, learning uh, the craft of diplomacy at the side of my grandfather. And, um, and it was uh, 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 sort of a, a very mind-opening experience, as you can imagine, uh, going to the chancellery, going around Austria, um, Cadillac limousines with flags flying and um, Marines and guards and all kinds of uh, really wondrous things. Uh, that shaped my experience um, of Austria, of the work of diplomats, etc. And, um, you know, um, it was particularly humbling for me to have been offered the same post. And in the preparations, my grandmother gave me all of the photo albums and the scrapbooks 
and a lot of hilarious advice. And she said to me, you're never gonna swim in the pool. It is absolutely freezing and you will not go in. And she said, don't think the Austrians dance, even though they have waltz there, these uh, uh, diplomatic events have no dancing. And she said, they do not understand hors d'oeuvres in Austria. They're gonna offer you a ham sandwich and pretend like it's an hors d'oeuvre. And she said, and by the way, if you forget anything at the residence, you are not gonna see it again until the end of the day because it is far away from the chancellery. So I was, uh, I was well armed by my grandmother with, with good advice, but it was really, um, I think a wonderful connection for me to have with the people of Austria. And, um, and I really do remember being there uh, and the people. And at one point I went to Schloss Leopoldskron, the, um, the home of the Salzburg Institute, but more importantly, the home of Georg von Trapp from The Sound of Music, this beautiful um, uh, palace in Salzburg. And they took me into the library of the room and I had not been there since I was five or six years old. And I said to them, somewhere in this room, there is a secret staircase, a, sec a secret passageway. And they said, how could you possibly know that? How could you possibly remember that? And I said, when you're a young boy and you see a secret staircase, you never forget it. And the person touring me around walked me over to one book and, and pushed a button and the uh, bookcase came out from the wall and there was a staircase. And he said, you're absolutely right. There is a staircase here. But, but that's what it was like for me going to Austria. And so, and my, as Bill mentioned, you know, my background, I, I did my undergraduate at Princeton. Uh, and I majored in politics, then I have two graduate degrees, one from Oxford, actually in international relations, and an MBA from Berkeley. Um, but uh, my career has been in technology, but my passion has always been international relations. And as such, I'm often asked, um, well, the polite people say, what was the uh, foreign policy of the Trump administration? Uh, the impolite people say, was there any strategy at all during the Trump administration? Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is um, probably good and appropriate to point out that there, yes, there was a strategy. Um, and um, we had a, a very accomplished assistant secretary in West Mitchell, who literally wrote uh, the book on kind of the modern book on alliance is the unquiet frontier, which is a book I had actually ironically already read well before I knew he would be our assistant secretary. But um, relatively early on in the administration, there was the, the new um, um, kind of defense policy put out and in combination kind of uh, um, uh, a tweaked thinking with regard to our foreign policy. So they were sort of hand in glove, but the kind of two cornerstones of the foreign policy were uh, America first, which has uh, in some ways, unfortunately, some negative connotations, but it really, I think what it meant was that you know, we had to look primarily through the lens of what was good for America uh, before factoring in um, other things, or as they said, America first, but not America alone, meaning alliances were, were key, uh, but, and then also uh, reciprocity, which meant looking at our, our various relationships with an eye towards do both parties, or in the case of uh, some of the multi-parties, do they all benefit equally or are they lopsided, uh, which, um, uh, which was sort of how we looked at uh, trade, uh, and uh, military alliances, et cetera. And then I think the, the final part was as part of that, uh, rethinking the US relationship with China. Um, and I think that uh, as we look back on the last four years, probably the signature achievement or what will be talked about the most is um, that you know this was really the first president to ring the bell on the perils of China um, and uh, and really that did bring about a sea change in um, not only our relationship with China, but 
for a lot of these uh, countries, or even in the case of the EU, that were happily accepting money or, or doing allowing deals um, with no strings attached to rethink that strategy. So, you know, we as diplomats were out there saying, don't sell your artificial intelligence businesses, don't sell your ports, your robotics factories, your crown jewels um, to, a to a country that will possibly use those to compete against you in the future. Um, but so that's sort of enough on that level. As far as my personal experience, um, it was, you know, first and foremost, a delightful experience and uh, 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 just the privilege of a lifetime, both for me, as well as my wife and my children who um, were both, um, I don't think they were maybe, you know, um, seven and nine years old when we went. Um, and so it was a grand adventure for us uh, to, to arrive in Vienna um, and um, uh, also an incredible learning curve. And we inherited uh, a wonderful property that I knew well in a park and a beautiful Bauhaus house, which inside was not so beautiful and uh, it sort of looked like a Radisson hotel somewhere outside of Boston. Um, and so uh, the first thing we did is to sort of say, how can we make the inside of this place, number one, match the outside, but number two, look like someone with some sense of culture or appreciation actually lives there, particularly for the Austrians who are so cultured and so aware. Um, and so uh, we, we embarked on what I would call kind of like an ambush makeover of the residents. Um, and I quickly learned that when the Soviet Union collapsed, all of the apparatchniks uh, moved to Northern Virginia where they joined the Office of Overseas Building Administration or OBO. Uh, and all they knew how to say was niet. Um, and so we were begging for the opportunity to spend our own money to transform this place. And it was uh, incredibly arduous, but we were able to uh, finally do what we wanted to do. And we painted almost every wall in the house in motifs of Klimt and Jugendstil and really made the inside come alive in the sort of turn of the century Vienna. And then uh, we brought from my collection uh, a large number of American photographs, which we put on the walls. Um, and so we really transformed this place. And that was kind of how we said, you know, hello um, uh, upon arrival. And it made a great and lasting impact. Um, and then uh, as I got to know my country team, who by the way, were really fantastic, very talented and very accommodating. Uh, and my, uh, I had an outgoing deputy and, and a new one who I knew nothing about. And she turned out to be just absolutely terrific and, and just an indispensable partner to me in what I was trying to do. And so um, I, I spent a lot of time getting to know my country team, getting to know the key players and, um, and getting a lay of the land. And uh, so I finally convened everyone. We did an offsite and I said, I expect all of you to do your jobs well, that to me is just simply table stakes. But I said, now I want each and every one of you to think about what you can do to transform the relationship between the United States of America and Austria. Um, and it's a relatively large team. We had about 400 at the bilateral um, embassy. And, you know, um, uh, Vienna is a is a, we have three embassies in Vienna. So in addition to the bilat, we have the um, OSCE and the UN. So, so it's a big operation. Um, and I had about 13 different uh, branches of the government reporting to me via the country team. So, um, so uh, I challenged everyone to really think outside the box. And I as well thought outside the box because I didn't go to Austria just to sort of make some friends. I really went to transform the relationship between the US and Austria. 
And I was um, a little bit disappointed uh, to really learn that the relationship between the US and Austria was a little bit mediocre. Um, it's not that uh, great work hadn't been done and it's no statement about any of my predecessors who all did great work. It's more a statement about the just the relationship in general, which is that what had been and should have been a, an incredible relationship given that Austria was uh, I think the largest per capita recipient of Marshall Plan money and America had literally rebuilt the country after the war, that that should have been, um, you know, an incredibly tight relationship. And even if you go pre-World War II, in 1918, America was there feeding 300,000 children a day. Um, uh, courtesy of President Wilson after um, World War One, and you know, so there's a long history of America coming to the aid of Austria, and yet there was a certain cynicism that I found um, compounded with kind of a a, a thought uh, meme that I didn't love of sort of equidistance between East and West. That Austria is a quote unquote bridge between. Russia and the West and therefore needs to be equally close with both and not too close with either. And so, you know, I found that to be frustrating and I really set a goal to really remind the Austrians that at the end of the day, you are a Western country far closer to the US than to Russia. And so I, um, I set about trying to do whatever I could to change that relationship. And it started with just um, making connections and friends within Vienna and beyond. And there was a coalition government there um, that was a little bit um, suspicious of us. And some things had been said and done previous to my um, arrival, which um, didn't set us up for success. But there is a very charismatic young chancellor called Sebastian Kurtz, um, who I instantly became very close with, and he, who was candid enough to tell me, you know, some of the gripes his coalition partners had with us and other things. And so I was um, keen on on correcting all of that and on uh, forging very close ties with um, with the, the government. And it, it was helped by the fact that the lieutenants of the key ministers, et cetera, were also really great people, young and energetic, who I naturally got along well with and also, um, you know, enjoyed cultivating relationships with. Um, so that was sort of uh, the first step there. And, um, and I... Um, I worked on a, a lot of different ways to uh, win over the Austrians. And I quickly learned that even though they had many complaints and suspicions about the US, particularly over the last four years, given the barrage of neg negative headlines, et cetera, but that they were very um, respectful of the American dream and in particular Silicon Valley. And so being a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, I quickly learned that I could leverage that background uh, to the advantage of the US. Um, and so um, I was everywhere at every university, at every forum, hosting events, doing things with the, uh, the Chamber of Commerce, with, with key uh, universities around the country to try and play up um, uh, entrepreneurship, the American dream, uh, Western technology, et cetera. Um, and that worked out really well. Um, secondarily, the Austrians are extremely cultured and they put a high value on culture. And so um, I had, uh, I've been a collector for a long time. I'm from a family of collectors. I was on the board of a couple major museums. And so I quickly cultivated uh, the, the cultural um, elites of Austria, some of whom I already knew and, and, um, and worked that angle uh, really extensively. And um, in both cases, I was able to expand our programs there with new things. So on the entrepreneurial side, I launched a program to send entrepreneurs to Silicon Valley every year, and we were able to get funding for it. Um, 
And uh, uh, that was tremendously popular. On the cultural side, I decided to um, issue an award that the embassy would give to what we called cultural icons of Austria. We called it the Cultural Icon Award. There's a wonderful, um, uh, very old crystal shop in Vienna called Lobmeyer. And so I got them to create for me a trophy. And, um, and we set about uh, figuring out who were the people who ought to receive it. And the first was a wonderful woman who had run the Spanish Riding School and the Opera Ball. Uh, and I gave her uh, the first award. And the second was the uh, very energetic head of the Salzburg uh, Music Festival. And it turned out to be a great opportunity because the night before the festival opening, the governor of Salzburg gives a huge black tie dinner. And so I was there and at the dinner was the president, the chancellor, uh, many of the top um, political figures of Austria, and also by chance the, um, the Russian minister of culture and his ambassador. And I had gotten permission to, uh, to, to get 10 minutes of everyone's time with a microphone. And so in front of the whole group, you know, I announced the award and brought up the uh, recipient, uh, Helga Rabel-Stadler, and we made a huge thing of it. And afterwards, one of the most senior Austrian politicians took me aside and he said, I have never seen something so masterful as to have all those people's attention and to have to make the Russian minister of culture sit through that. And I can imagine that his ambassador is getting quite an earful right this moment from him. But it was a, a great moment for us. Um, and then I realized the Austrians really craved access to senior US uh, political figures and that they had almost a chip on their shoulder that they had not had more access in the past. And um, for instance, um, uh, Secretary Kerry, I believe, had visited Vienna something like 17 times working on the uh, Iran deal, but really hadn't taken the time to have a proper bilateral uh, meeting, et cetera. And so the Austrians were very focused on that, as was the chancellor, who was you know, aware of his standing within Europe and, and looking to continue to enhance it. And so uh, I... Uh, desperately wanted to deliver on this, but it was obvious to me that this was a challenge because, you know, I'd been to three weeks of ambassador school, but that was kind of it. And I, and I quickly learned, you know, uh, there was no 800 number, you know, uh, I don't want to paraphrase, um, you know, any of our other uh, Kissinger uh, quotes, but the no way to call Washington and get what I wanted, and there was no concierge service for ambassadors that would just make anything happen. And so I had to kind of learn quickly how to uh, work the corridors and and get the things that I wanted done done. And uh, and that was a, a big learning uh, process for me in particular. But we had a great deal of success, and so I was able to get a lot of meetings done. And, you know, in the post-war period, in a typical year, probably one Austrian minister would have uh, a meeting with a counterpart in Washington. Maybe the Minister of Justice would go to D.C., maybe the Minister, you know, of Education or something like that. And so I didn't really, um, you know, that was sort of the... Um, that was sort of the, the, the benchmark. In my first 12 months in Austria, we had um, 12 high level meetings. It had never been done before. Uh, so in addition to a number of uh, key ministers, I took the um, Austrian Minister of Defense to the Pentagon. That was the first time in eight years. And I took the chancellor uh, to the Oval Office to meet with the president. That was the first time in 14 years. Uh, in fact, uh, I also got a second visit for the chancellor with the president, which had never happened in history. And we all went to Washington. It was uh, February of uh, last year and two days before the meeting, while we were all there, it was canceled due to COVID and, and never happened. But at least we were able to make that um, invitation come. I had the Secretary of State uh, visit in Vienna. It was only the second official visit 
in the post-war period of a Secretary of State to Vienna. Um, and so we were able to make an extraordinary amount of things happen both uh, on both ways. I, I had uh, important people to Vienna and then many important visits of Austrians to the US. And so um, this really helped to bring about, I think um, what we called the Verbundenheit uh, or a new closeness. And, and we use the term deliberately to the point where the media really started to, to repeat the, um, that there was this new closeness that existed. And um, even some of the most seasoned and hardened um, editors grudgingly admitted that um, uh, you have changed this country and there is a recognition now that we, that we look west and not east. Um, but there were uh, you know, complicated moments. Uh, we had early in my tenure, a, a full government shutdown um, we had to furlough people, others were working without pay, and I thought, my God, uh, this must be the most challenging thing that is going to happen to me uh, in my time as ambassador. I had no idea that COVID would be coming, you know, a year and a half later. Uh, the foreign minister of Austria, uh, quite, a, quite a handful herself, uh, ended up inviting Vladimir Putin to her wedding, and, um, and dancing with him quite famously and making quite a brouhaha um, and uh, uh, challenging for me and, and a complicated thing to think through. And I made only one very, very measured comment in the press. And I said, it is fine to be a bridge builder, but if so, one must make sure the bridge goes and connects both sides. Um, and uh, that, uh, created quite a stir. Uh, and later I had a big birthday party and I invited her and I danced with her at my party and it was all over the press and, 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 I, and I handled it very carefully and well. Um, and uh, um, there were other moments, but uh, uh, then came COVID and, and this was a hugely unforeseen challenge for me and for my team and I, and I was so, um, uh, pleased with how well they handled it, but um, it became clear to me that all this money we'd put aside for events and things was going to be useless. And I thought, what can I do? How can I continue my outreach? How can I continue, continue this momentum? How can I get myself out there in the media, meeting people, doing things when no one is going out and nothing is happening and we can't throw events and we can't do things? And so I thought and thought and thought and thought about it. And then I came up with an idea and I said to my team, how much money can we scrape together from our events and from things we aren't doing? And we added up the money and I was able to convince a company in Los Angeles uh, to take that money and to sell us a half million cloth American made masks. And they were expedited and air shipped to Vienna. And um, I went around all over Austria handing out these masks. And I was able to partner with the largest newspaper in the country and the largest uh, television and radio station, which have overriding market share. And they covered me as I went to each region, met with the governors, handed over thousands of masks to them, went to the schools and handed them out, went to retirement homes, um, and met with local mayors. Uh, on the first day that they uh, reintroduced uh, in-person school in Vienna, we gave a mask to every single student in Vienna so that they could go to school with a mask. Um, and it was very positively covered. And then um, I was able to cut a deal with, with good help from my team, I should add, uh, with the Wiener Linien, the, the main transportation um, system of Vienna. We got them to give us two tram cars, which we painted all over with giant hearts that had American flags and Austrian flags in the hearts. And then I put on the cars all the key dates in our relationship, starting with the date that we, um, uh, we initiated formal relationship. And then uh, the uh, 
1918, where we were feeding care packages to kids, and then again, uh, care packages after World War II, and then the, the start of the Marshall Plan, the, the state treaty where uh, Austria received its independence, and then um, the mask program, et cetera. And it happened to dovetail with the visit of the Secretary of State. So we got the mayor of Vienna and we went out and we cut the ribbon for the first tram car. And so we tried to get the program uh, uh, to, to run and run. And then I got permission from the State Department for, for an additional budget to run a very sophisticated online program. We called it Hearts and Minds using factual information to, um, to contravene some of these biases, uh, anti-US biases that we had been able to measure. Um, and I'm really proud and happy to say that that program continues to run with funding even now uh, after uh, I have departed post. And so, um, you know, that's sort of a, a brief snapshot. I don't wanna talk this whole time because I wanna be sure I entertain questions, but, um, you know, I'm really proud of the work we did. I, I feel like I uh, inherited a great team. They were all wonderful. Each of them did deliver for me that above and beyond that I requested, you know, my consular team. First, they figured out how to, to make every McDonald's across the US, almost 200 of them, um, uh, a traveler service uh, um, facility where any American who'd lost their wallet or their purse or needed help could go to any McDonald's and be connected to the consulate in Vienna. Uh, they also found a diamond courier that could deliver passports same day. Uh, um, you know, each, each of my departments came up with ideas like that. So I, I feel like we really did um, uh, transform that relationship. And that relationship also transformed me and my family. And we come back, you know, it's now been a couple months. I think we're still in a little bit of shell shock from the transition, but, you know, it, it, it really gave us um, a lifetime of memories, new relationships and friendships, and so much uh, pleasure to have been able to serve our country and to join the ranks of all of you in so doing. And so, uh, again, thank you all for, for your time and I entertain your questions. Okay, well, that was terrific. And I think everyone can see why you uh, did such a terrific job in Austria the last few years. Let me take a couple of the issues you brought up and go a little further. Uh, you mentioned the Trump administration's uh, pivot in effect standing up to China more so than in the past. How did that play out in Austria? And in particular, our, uh, you know, the Trump administration and, and the, the Biden administration as well, I believe, have been very unhappy with the, and concerned about the uh, influence of Chinese technology in 5G and Huawei, et cetera. What was the reaction of the Austrians to that issue? And were they, do they share our concern about Huawei technology and 5G, et cetera? Well, one of the most interesting things that I learned along my way, which I'm sure many of you also learned is that, um, you know, increasingly uh, we are ambassadors bilaterally to these countries, but then also the EU. Right. And yes, we have an ambassador to the EU, but a lot of EU related work happens at the country level. Um, it's sort of bottom up as well as top down. And uh, so that's kind of fascinating. And um, I'm sure many of you have noticed that um, the EU is uh, conveniently used by some of these countries when, you know, they need air cover. Uh, and, uh, and but but I felt like frequently I was working both angles simultaneously. And sometimes the way Austria felt was very different than the EU. And sometimes they were in, in lockstep. Uh, and um, um, Austria is lucky in as much as it is a very prosperous country. So um, there is less of a lending relationship with the Chinese. You know, they don't borrow from the Chinese. They don't need the capital. Um, but then they do want to do business with the Chinese. Um, and we were seeing Confucius centers uh, pop up. 
and um, uh, and uh, Chinese businesses um, headquartering in in Austria. And so, um, but you know the uh, the Austrians did implement new investment screening. Um, which looks very carefully at um, any investment from the Chinese in sensitive or progressive uh, industries in Austria with an eye towards preventing the Chinese from owning anything that might be strategic. And so that is, I think, uh, probably across Europe, our number one win was that we um, you know, got the Europeans to stop selling their ports. Uh, I mean, even more importantly, their baggage handling systems. You know, when the Chinese run a system like that, you know, they scan every bag and they know every person and their movement, right? Um, and so early on, we focused on that and then came um, Huawei and 5G. And it looked like that train had already left the station um, and sort of maybe year two or year three, there was a huge push from Washington to try and stop it. And uh, our um, E, you know, our undersecretary, Keith Kroc, who, who ironically lives about five doors over from me here in San Francisco, um, he came in really with a primary emphasis on stopping it and creating what we call um, clean networks, networks of technology networks where we know for a fact the Chinese cannot take data out of them. And um, so we did a huge, huge push in Austria and elsewhere to educate uh, the, both the government and the, the telecom players about the dangers of putting too much Chinese hardware into their stack. Um, and uh, that was quite successful. There were, um, uh, you know, it's a complicated thing because we were also um, coming hard at EU countries on Nord Stream 2. Um, and that um, created friction because um, the, some of these countries, Austria included, felt like we were imposing uh, our will in what they view as business decisions and business conversations. Um, and therefore, we had a lot of work as diplomats to do to show them that you might think this is a purely a business decision, but um, either we see it differently or, or more powerfully, what I would argue is your fellow EU countries see it differently, right? So, you know, Austria and Germany might think of something like Nord Stream 2 as a pure business decision, but Hungary or Poland or, or Latvia or Lithuania might see it as an existential threat. And so a lot of what I did was say, don't call, don't take my word for it, you know, call your counterpart in Warsaw, ask them how they feel about it. Like, understand that, you know, your um, sisters and brothers in the EU may have different, different points of view. And so, um, so we worked it that way. But, you know, the other thing that I found very powerful is uh, I use the argument that we are so culturally different from the Chinese, you know, and, and I would say, let's acknowledge there are issues between the US and the EU right now. Uh, <coughs> there are real issues here, but I would say, but you could measure those issues in, you know, meters or even centimeters, whereas our collective issues with the Chinese, you can measure in kilometers. I said, they don't wanna join our team. They don't wanna be part of us. They wanna overtake us. They reject our Western systems uh, and they look over a 5,000 year span of history and see this as an anomaly that they wanna correct. So let's all get on the same program here collectively. And that was a pretty powerful argument. And on this, on the, along the same lines, you mentioned Austria's, you know, tradition of neutrality between East and West, and trying to point out to them that they really are a Western country, uh, because certainly, you know, by any other measure, they are, uh, and yet they consistently will find ways to, you know, curry favor with Russia. OMV, the Austrian energy company, apparently is an investor now in Nord Stream 2, I'm told. 
Uh, how did you handle that? That must have been a challenge. Well, um, it was a challenge, uh, but it was a constant game of reminder. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, I, um, I think I did it two or three different ways. The first is that I really did link the leaders of the government, the ministers, et cetera, I linked them directly to their American counterparts. So, you know, for the first time in a long time, you know, the Minister of Commerce could call our Secretary of Commerce and talk about a meeting they'd already had, right? Uh, and so, you know, it started with getting the different players to know each other because once the Austrian members of the government felt like they had relationships with the US government counterparts, that changed the conversation a lot. Um, the second part is that I was actually given some extraordinary gifts through, I think, blunders made by Vladimir Putin. Um, and I mean, we actually, and this was really, really hard, we got the Austrians, the most neutral, careful, polite people on the planet to PNG a Russian. Um, and that never happens. Um, but, you know, um, it became obvious that the Russians had been behaving somewhat naughty uh, in Vienna. And I was able in other ways to educate the Austrians that the Russians maybe were not being as polite as we were on certain things in, in Austria. And, and I think that was also a persuasive uh, argument. So it was a, a many different things. It wasn't one thing. Terrific. So uh, I want to take a look at the uh, some of the questions from our audience. Ambassador Todd Sedgwick, who, as you know, was ambassador to Slovakia when I was in Vienna, uh, asks, as part of the trend for Austria looking westward, is there any prospect or path for Austria at some point to join NATO? Well, you know, the, one of the most intractable problems I faced was the Turks and their, um, their intervention at the NATO level to prevent Austria from doing anything. Um, and so um, Austria currently is a member of the Partnership for Peace initiative within NATO. Um, and really uh, wonderful, like poster child participants of it, you know, um, per capita, Austria is one of the largest providers of peacekeeping troops. They're in over a dozen different engagements around the world. And in Kosovo at the K4, they are the second biggest provider of troops after the US. Um, so they are in really in every way, the Austrians are a wonderful partner to the US. And I think Austria would quietly do more with NATO. You know, I don't think they want to jeopardize their official neutrality. So I don't think they would do anything to do that, but I think they would do more. But part of the problem, and I went to Brussels and met with Kay Bailey Hutchinson, our ambassador at NATO, and I tried and tried and tried to, to fix this problem that the Austrians have been blocked by the Turks. But you know, there's hundreds of years of enmity between the Turks and the Austrians, and that was you know too much even for someone with my level of energy to overcome. <laughs> uh, Herman Cohen, uh, former ambassador, right, asks: did, Given the threat from ISIS, did the Austrian government provide enhanced security to you? Uh, yes, they did, and they were. So great. I mean, I, the, the Austrian government, they were so, they were wonderful partners and the Echo Cobra who um, you had, who I had, who, who guarded me, they were the, the greatest guys. Um, my, my wife used to say, you know, you spend more time with them than you do with me, but you know, they were wonderful and I would ski with them and go running and we go to the gym together and all this, they were always with me. They were so professional and great. And I felt really, um, really safe. There, there was one incident I had that required a lot of extra security. And I was at the, um, downhill ski races in Kitzbühel. I had nine bodyguards walking with me 
I felt like uh, um, in a cocoon or whatever, but they, they were amazing. And they're terrific skiers. Yes. Your skiing improved when you were in Austria, or were you already a professional level skier? It, uh, I was a pretty good skier and it did improve. And one of the highlights for me is the chancellor inviting me to go skiing with him. And, oh, wow. um, and he's a great skier too. And um, we, uh, we had like a, a great couple days of skiing and it was, a, it was like a nice way to sort of, I, I mean, it proverbially break the ice, you know? That's terrific because skiing is everything to the Austrians. So Tim Chorba would like to ask, who painted the striking work of art behind you and did you take it to Vienna? Uh, um, well, it is uh, a painting I've owned for many years and it's by an artist called Kim Wiggins. And he's paints in the Southwest. I think he might live in uh, uh, Santa Fe or something, but it's actually uh, called Sonoma Night is the painting. And no, I didn't take it. I took only photography to Austria. Um, not uh, painting, but I, I'm, it's funny, I'm looking at a Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington, which is across the office for me and thinking that would have been a better backdrop for this uh, <laughs> talk than this, but that's okay. <laughs> Tim also asks, what is the status of the performing arts scene in a given COVID in Austria? Are the theaters, concert halls and operas dark or are they operating and what's going on? Well, it's kind of start stop. So right now, Vienna is in another hard lockdown. Uh, and, you know, we were a lot of things that I was looking forward to uh, got canceled. I mean, I feel like we sort of got robbed of our last year. There were no Christmas markets, no opera ball, no, no uh, Philharmonica ball. Uh, but I do credit the Salzburg Festival last summer because, you know, they said, forget it, we're, we're going. And they had a slightly reduced schedule and they had um, COVID protocols, no bathroom breaks, nothing, but, you know, they had a successful COVID free, you know, uh, season. And uh, um, it was their hundredth anniversary, wasn't it? It was. And we had all these things planned. I had like fireworks I was going to do and all of this stuff, but we never got to do any of it. But, um, oh, gosh. Um, but I think they will make this coming summer their official hundred. That sounds great. You know, uh, it, it, it's clear to me, listening to you, you dealt with a lot of the same issues that I dealt with. This, this, the fact that so many Austrian young people have completely forgotten all of the aid and they don't learn it in school that the Austrians received from the United States after World War I, World War II, et cetera, helping to rebuild the country. The older people I found remember Yes, if and they were sort of 50 or more, yeah. they would tell you the first chocolate they ever had was from exactly. But the young people don't know this and therefore they have none of that feeling of loyalty and, and appreciation to the United States. Yeah, so, and it was also, you know, challenging too. I mean, imagine, you know, it, it is the elephant in the room, but I was also Donald Trump's ambassador, right? And yeah. so with that came a lot of baggage. And I remember, you know, I was... Um, you know, really wanted to spend a lot of time talking to university students and the rector of the university in Vienna, which is the largest university, um, you know, was with me and I said, I want to talk to your students. And he said, are you sure? <laughs> because they are very blunt. And I said, I am. And so I got into a room. I had 400 students. I had 12 bodyguards in the room. Uh, and I was given two hours and I stood up in front of them and I said, let's have an honest conversation here. There's great things about America. There's things we can do better. There's whatever, you know, I, I fielded questions for an hour and a half. And after, uh, you know, I was done, the entire room stood and they all applauded. Uh, and, you know, you have to be willing to go into the lion's den and, and just tackle these issues head on. I think, you know, I think that's admirable. I, I, we've got a few more comments and, uh, and questions. Swanee Hunt, Hunt says, holy cow, you're great. <laughs> well, I'm, that was Hi, one Swanee. of the saddest things I never got to meet Swanee. Oh, well, you, you, you will get your chance, I'm sure. Uh, she, she writes in here that she wants to know when you'll be in DC next and can you dance? 
<laughs> well, I learned how to dance oh. from my grandmother, uh, you, you know, and I hope that maybe she can be the judge of that. But I do get to DC a lot. My, my, uh, unfortunately, my grandmother died last year, and my uncle just died. But we have a family home in Washington, and I do get there, and it's like a second home to me. And um, I knew or was related to so many of the previous ambassadors to Austria. Catherine Hall is my neighbor in the Napa Valley. Um, we know the Browns very well. I've known them for years and, uh, and uh, several others, but Swanee was someone I always wanted to meet and never got to. Uh, another great question from Tim Chorba. Given, you mentioned, you know, the, the elephant in the room with the, the views of President Trump and having to overcome that. Uh, he asks, what are the notable negative Austrian impressions of the United States that you experienced beyond Donald Trump? What kind of, you know, what kind of feedback or negative impressions did you run into? Or was it mostly just related to the, their views of the president? Well, it's interesting. We actually did a lot of work on this. I, I found budget. I hired a research firm and we polled Austrians and we really dug super deep into where is the problem here? What is the disconnect? Because the Austrians are very polite. They won't tell you to your face, I have an issue with the US. And they don't even really understand themselves what their issues are, right? But what we learned is it actually began in the 70s, kind of with Zionism and the PLO, and the, there was a chancellor who was very critical of our support of Israel, and um, and that was sort of the beginning. And then you can go through, you know, the you know um, the war in Iraq and all kinds of stuff. But the primary sets of issues I think are not unique to Austria, but it's number one. Um, uh, um, gun ownership and, and gun control, number two, um, environmental issues, number three, kind of uh, lack of a social safety net in the US, even obesity is something that comes up a lot, um, and uh, you know, food safety. Uh, so it's kind of a constellation of issues, many of which are based on misperceptions um, or biases. And so uh, and then you threw on top of that, you know, President Trump. And, you know, what I would say about President Trump is that um, there was often more of a method to the madness than meets the eye. But one of the things that I would say is he uh, was not a communicator, meaning, you know, decisions, he'd make a decision and it would just uh, tumble out there without any caveats, right? So, I always say, you know, the Iran deal, um, you know, the president campaigned skeptically about the Iran deal, but, you know, he still took 14 months before deciding what to do about the deal. And during that time, our diplomats were engaged actively with the Iranians saying, we're watching you, behave yourselves, we're measuring you, et cetera. And ultimately, you know, you can say smart people disagreed about whether it was the best deal we could get or working or not, and a call was made. But rather than explaining all of that, you know, there was a tweet that was sent. And therefore it was hard for the diplomats because our job was to have to frame and explain a lot of the policies that came out without explanation. It wasn't necessarily that the policies were bad policies, just that meant that they lacked context, which was a lot of our job. What advice would you give to the next US ambassador to Austria? Well, you know, I think we really set the table uh, in a lot of great ways. So there's a lot of things to continue uh, that, you know, that we put into motion. Um, and I, I think that um, the good of what we did was that we, um, we created a, a level of closeness which has never existed before between the United States and Austria. Um, the challenge for whoever replaces me is that there will be expectations that they can deliver the kind of access and other things that I delivered and if they can't, they will be judged based on that. Um, but as I say, you know, I didn't really know President Trump when I became ambassador. It wasn't that I had so many incredible ins at the White House. I just figured out how to work the system. Uh, and so I'm sure whoever replaces me will be able to do the same and to, to, to deliver the same results. 
Well, listen, this has been a terrific hour and we thank you very much. Uh, by the way, uh, Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, oh, as you know, was ambassador to Hungary. And, and another wonderful supporter of mine. And I, I, the first thing I did was get her book and read it even before- It's a I terrific book. She says, welcome back to California. So we all welcome you back home. And uh, I know that uh, Swanee Hunt points out that she asked, shall we dance, not can you dance? I miss her a bit. I'm well, I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> of course. And anyway, we hope we can get you to Washington to, and attend a couple of Council of, on a, of American Ambassador luncheons here. And we do an annual spring program and an annual uh, program in New York and hope you can attend that and become an active member. And thank you so much again for this hour. It's just been terrific. Well, it's as I say, all of you are so accomplished. I think maybe Lucky Roosevelt's also somewhere on this call. She was dear friend of my family and, and many others and many other uh, very accomplished people. And so it's, as I say, it's humbling for me to be, you know, amongst this August crowd. And, uh, and, and I hope that I made it a little bit interesting. So thank you for having me. Thank you.